0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph podcasts. Five. Rishi Sunak, I fear, increasingly coming across as this timid technocrat who overthinks every problem. Four.
1: Rishi Sunak needs to start trusting his instincts rather than looking at focus groups. Three. As with the major
0: government, as you said, it is death by a hundred tiny scandals, isn't it?
2: Children are being taught in school that if their parents don't accept their trans identity, then they're transphobic, they're bigots. One.
1: We have the Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph Podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It feels like Back to the Future Co-Pilot. It's the early 90s, I'm a slim floppy haired undergraduate, leads are top of the league and (laughs) Queen and Brian Adams are ruling the pop charts. Why do I say that? Because just as in the early 90s, a tired Tory party is embroiled in sleaze with ministers' tax affairs and public appointments under very close scrutiny. There's a recession looming and taxes already sky high could go up even more. Back in those early post-Thatcher years, though, Tory Prime Minister John Major was always within touching distance of Labour and famously came from behind to beat Neil Kinnock in 1992. Now, though, today's strung out, increasingly sleazy broad Tory government is consistently 20 or even 30 points behind. There's a lot of news about, Alison. You've been writing about an asylum-seeking murderer and the Church of England – I've been in the north of England, investigating tax policy and the future of that long-awaited gigafactory just north of Newcastle, a project now stored, pouring water on Tory claims to be levelling up the country. The links to both our Telegraph columns are in the show notes to this episode, and there's plenty to talk about. But before we start, let me ask you this, co-pilot. How will the Tories fare in the fast-approaching local elections in May? And will Rishi Sunak even lead the Conservatives into the next general election? the deadline for which is early 2025. I have to say, when I heard you say that taxes could go up even more,
0: where to? (laughs) Got 50p left to buy some
1: more logs. I mean, God almighty. There was some weird tax in the 70s, some kind of super-duper-duper tax. It was like 91% or something. But Was that under Dennis Heady and the eyebrows? And the pips squeaking. You couldn't even afford to buy your box of Black Magic and a Panatella cigar, could you? Let alone some imperial leather soap on a bobsleigh in the advert. Do you remember that? Luckily, there wasn't very much consumer choice
0: back then, was there, really? It was between milk tray and Black Magic. There was none of your fancy
1: pants chocolates. Did you wear Charlie? Of course I wore Charlie. Or did you wear Just Musk? Just Musk by Landerique. Should be allowed. <laughs> no, I didn't wear just I definitely wore Charloo which I thought. And was then there long. was those weird adverts. high karate, do you remember? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you put this high karate on and however small and ugly you are, you get attacked by sort of Amazonian women. <laughs> <laughs> karate choppy <laughs> <laughs> Was it, it was aftershave,
0: high karate. Yeah, high
1: karate. Where did that come
0: from? I don't know. But Charlie oh, was dear. definitely the scent of choice for those of us with not very much choice. I was a Saturday girl in Littlewoods back then. Can you believe it? Working on the ladies' underwear section. We'll pass over that in silence. But anyway, yes, polls. Well, one of the latest polls showing the Tories as heading for the worst results since 1906. And Valma's put her truffle hat on and got out her magnifying glass and 1906 saw a 5.4% swing from conservatives to liberal and liberals had a 140% three seat majority, which then strangely did pave the way for a Labour government. It's not looking very good, co-pilot. Well I don't know, it depends on your view. Many listeners may be thrilled at the prospect of Angela Rayner as the deputy prime minister. But anyway, look before we go into that let's just get the co-pilot's economics KP on. So national debt this week 2.5 trillion treasury borrowing 27.4
1: billion last month. A mere soup song.
0: Yes and RL friends, the OBR saying they overstated the prospects for growth. Also saying, I see that any recession will be shorter and shallower, but we're still going to be in the
1: doo doo. So Halligan, what do you think? The borrowing numbers that came out early this week really were genuinely eye watering. In the month of December alone, we borrowed the thick end of twenty seven billion twenty seven thousand million pounds. That's up from under eleven billion in December 2021, so more than double. What is 27 billion quid? Well, if you think that a penny on income tax throughout the whole year raises between four and five billion, that's 27 billion is taking up five or six pence of the income tax that you're paying throughout the whole year. That's the size of the borrowing in just one month. And why are we borrowing so much? Because Of the energy support schemes, Mm, yeah, I was going to say, but also the lion's share over seventeen billion of that twenty seven is debt interest on the national debt. Because as the national debt goes up, and the interest rate you pound that national debt goes up, and we've seen that, and there's inflation, and a lot of those gilts, so called the government bonds that they sell to international, often investors. They're increasingly linked to inflation. They're called index linked bonds. So the government has to pay creditors, people lending money to the government, more money because a higher rate of interest and an inflation compensation on top in order to borrow money. So it's tremendously expensive. And it is an argument which Jeremy Hunt and the OBR will wield to say we can't afford to do anything, we can't afford to pay for public sector wages. In the double digits, the kind of increases that a lot of the unions want, we can't afford to cut taxes. But a lot of people in Parliament increasingly, and also people in financial markets, it's an emerging thing, will say, "Hang about! Is this rise in corporation tax that's going to come in in April really going to lead to more revenue when you go from 19 to 25% corporation tax? Isn't it going to shut businesses down? Covid hammered businesses." Corporation tax, you pay it if you run a kebab shop, if you run a plumbing company, you know, if you're a newspaper columnist, by the way, <laughs> with freelance earnings. We all pay corporation tax. It's not just, you know, big bold bracket businesses. It's ordinary men and women with families. And it may be, I mean, I don't know, but there is a battle going on for, if you like, economic hearts and minds before the next budget in March. Is the economy going to grow? Are we going to go into recession? Is inflation finally licked? Is there enough money? Is the best way to take on this country's interests to keep raising taxes because you want to balance the books or to finally go for growth and grow our way out of this high tax, low productivity, low investment impasse that we're at? That's basically what's happening. And the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, you know, having played. They will probably think to themselves a key role in removing one prime minister. They're getting their views in early. It's not private notes in the chancellor and the prime minister's red box. It's front page of the newspapers, son.
0: We also saw, didn't we, from Civitas, our Planet Normal friend, Tim Knox, come up with some more sort of stonking research, suggesting that a huge number more people are now dependent on welfare and benefits. And those figures were really alarming. We've talked, haven't we, about the number of working age people who are not economically active. And the Conservative plan to make work pay, to encourage people into work.
1: And those figures were absolutely astonishing as well. I think Tim Knox does some interesting work at Civitas, his latest report. And what he does, he just analyses official data, but he does it in great depth. It shows that something like 36 million people, 54% of us in the UK, now live to some extent on benefits, receiving more in benefits than they contribute in taxes. That is the welfare state really meant to be paying money on a net basis to more than half the population. Seems a bit weird. Is that really what Beveridge had in mind? Obviously, we need to look after genuinely vulnerable people. We're a civilized country, but when more than half of all individuals are getting more in benefits than they're paying in taxes. Is that really healthy?
0: Well, it's completely nuts, isn't it? And I think there's also the idea that the beasts of burden, which is the rest of us, and a diminishingly small bunch of people who are paying for the benefits, is I think a growing sense that what are we getting for our money? I mean, we don't have a functioning health service. You've got Sajid Javid, popping up saying, suggesting we all pay for G P appointments and we pay a bit for an ambulance ride or to go to A and E. And I was thinking, That's all very well, Sonny, but I've paid for that. <laughs> we have paid for that so if you're going to go and waste my money on things like absolutely towering tiers of nhs management that i don't agree with and then you're going to turn around and say right you're going to have to pay for the bits of the nhs you do use you can't think of a nice way of saying sod off but really people are not getting value for money well, sod
1: off is quite nice compared to what you really want to say <laughs> it's quite nice compared to. i must say on this nhs reform thing i think People are making a mistake. We've had former cabinet ministers and other people who genuinely want to reform the NHS the way we do. But they're piling in straight away with you have to pay up front, you have to pay up front, you have to pay up front. That is not the way to get the debate for NHS reform off the ground at all. No. Because you will instantly play into the hands of those people who have basically stalled the debate for a generation by saying it's either America and leaving people in the street because their credit card has expired or it's our massively status system. We should be moving towards a system where you have a mixed economy of provision to a greater extent than we do with the use of social insurance, but no one pays at the point of use. I think it's a completely inept political tactic for people who want to reform the NHS talking immediately about payment, however small, and broaching that principle. But that's how I see it.
0: I've seen the usual suspects on social media. And of course, they immediately start saying, look at these people coming to take your money. Elderly people won't be able to afford a GP's appointment. As you say, it's completely the wrong way to sell it. But coming back to the sort of government picture, Liam, obviously, the government's tactic on the NHS is to say as little as possible and hope we get to March when the winter crisis tends to ebb. You know, do nothing, accept no one and hope for the best. I mean, it's Absolutely pitiful. And I think a growing theme now is a lack of political courage, a lack of substantive content coming from number 10. Rishi Sunak, I fear, increasingly coming across as this timid technocrat who overthinks every problem, not being bold on the issues that matter to people. He's letting Labour dominate. At the NHS debate, he actually called people this week. He actually, you see, Lib, he actually called people who want lower taxes idiots, or the idiots formerly known as Conservative voters. So he's actually insulting what remains of his core vote, and into this void, into this lack of political sort of activity and decisiveness, tumble all these, as you said at the top, all these minor scandals, Nadim Zahawi's tax arrangements, Tory Party chairman paid a lump sum of a million quid to settle tax arrears. Meanwhile, there's this row that no one really cares about, about the appointment of the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, people now looking into that. (laughs) To be honest, I thought we'd heard the last for a while of the terrible job title, Prime Minister's Ethics Advisor, which someone said that Boris's Ethics Advisor sounded like something he put on sweatshirts at a stag do. I I just thought of a
1: sort of Hammer House of Horror poster. (laughs) It's back from the swamp the Prime Minister's ethics advisor.
0: Well, yes, he stalks the land again. And then, of course, we're getting this. It's basically, as with the major government, as you said, is death by a hundred tiny scandals, isn't it? You can't say the ultimate or the nadir of this was when Rishi didn't wear his seatbelt when he was filming a video clip in his Prime Ministerial motorcade and was fined by Lancashire police.
1: That was leading the news for half a day. You know, people can't... Pay their electricity bills. There's massive overcrowding and homelessness in this country, and people are wanging on. If he was well advised, he could have just biffed it away by saying there's a stipulation in the traffic law that if it's a police thing or a blue light thing, you don't have to wear a seatbelt in the back. And obviously, he had a police escort. But it's so trivial, isn't it? We were laughing at home
0: about the fact that Rishi's so small, he was probably sitting on his child booster seat, and the belt got wrapped around his neck so he had to take it off. But even so, we're laughing, but it is utterly petty. But once these petty things get traction, the government starts to look really iffy, don't you think? And I I just think now they they can hardly put a foot right.
1: What I would say is that Rishi Sunak needs to start trusting his instincts rather than Looking at focus groups and so on, if you try to govern by focus groups, if you try and govern by calibrating between the front page of The Guardian and the Telegraph, you are never going to come across as a leader, and what this country desperately needs and responds to so well for decades for generations is genuine leadership we don't care where our leaders come from we don 't care if they're posh or if they didn 't go to university. we've had all comers in that sense, and we don't really care. If they're Labour or Tory. We've had very successful, in historic terms, Labour prime ministers in our lifetime, Alison. But what we don't like are people who refuse to lead. Our first past the post system produces, for the most part, stark election outcomes that give people mandates to do stuff for a certain period of time. And Rishi Sunak needs to trust his instincts, which, in my view, are not statist. I don't think he's a statist in his bones, but he's being pushed into this kind of statism because he's being told what to do by his mandarins and treasury officials and the OBR. This is a guy who has moved effortlessly between major institutions of Britain and the world, whether it's you know incredibly prestigious schools or universities, through bulge bracket investment banks, all the way through his career and he's risen effortlessly by imbibing the culture and not rocking the boat, right? Mm. He needs to get in there and shape this government to his will. He needs to show them that it's not right to have a tax burden that's at a 70-year high going up even more. You do have to take risks to govern. You do have to go for growth. That doesn't mean full-strength Liz Trust, Quasi Quatting. Their budget was very much about There was a lot of hubris there. She was like an uncaged animal with all respect to her after being in government for a long time and being seriously wound up, I think, by people stopping her doing what she wanted to do in her various other roles, particularly when she was chief secretary of the treasury, by the way. And so suddenly she had her hands on the tiller and she went over the top, I think, in terms of what she wanted to do so many things at once Though the direction of travel was Right. And Rishi Sunak has to take the best of what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were trying to do and present it in a way that it will hold the road and won't spook the markets. I say again, people in financial markets, they're now less concerned about the fact that the government's spending too much. Even after these borrowing numbers, they're concerned that the government is going to strangle the economy by being too statist. I think this corporation tax rise, as I've said, from 19 to 25% in April, it's in law now, I think it's going to generate a lot more business casualties than it is revenue. I think it will be a net loss for the Treasury to increase corporation tax by so much because so many businesses will fold.
0: We have been hearing from some businesses which are struggling this week. My view is why be a sort of bad labour Blairite tribute act. That's what they're being. They're not. He might as well try being a conservative. You know, just give it a go. Because the number of Telegraph readers I hear from who they don't just want them to do badly; they want them to be destroyed. Liam, it really has got that bad. We mentioned at the top of the show actually that there was a, something I wrote about. I felt very, very passionately incensed about this week, and it's although it's a specific story about a so-called child asylum seeker, it did seem to tap into some of this sort of sense we've had that the country isn't working. Not only is the country not working, the state is working against the interests of people in the country pandering to a small kind of virtue signaling minority. So you'll have read it, Liam, but there was this asylum seeker, Abdul Rahimzai. He was convicted this week of the murder of 21-year-old Tom Roberts, a very promising young man, almost identical age to my own Tom. So that struck me. And he was stabbed To death in Bournemouth town centre by this guy who had arrived in Dorset on a Brittany ferry from Cherbourg in 2019. And this guy persuaded the authorities somehow, presumably he didn't have papers, that he was a 14-year-old orphan from Afghanistan. In fact, he was well over 18 and had already been sentenced in his absence to 20 years in a Serbian jail for murdering two fellow Afghanis with an AK-47. Now, just a few weeks before he arrived in the UK, an asylum claim that he had made... In Norway, was rejected by Norwegians, sensible people, and it seems to him that British immigration officials didn't believe that Abdul Rahimzai was a young teenager as he claimed. But under Home Office rules, they had to give him the benefit of the doubt. He can only be treated as an adult if physical appearance and demeanor strongly suggested he was twenty-five or over. So, to cut a very long story short, he was given into the care of a foster mother who noticed his propensity for violence and knives. And I think the worst thing, Liam, is that he was allowed to attend a Bournemouth secondary school where fellow pupils spotted immediately that he was a lot older than he had claimed. So utterly outrageous and culminating in the most dreadful murder.
1: And you did describe, Alison, rightly, I think, the whole kind of asylum system As an industry, there's a cadre of lawyers who, look, we have to have some kind of due process. Of course, we have to have some kind of due process. But it does seem to me that common sense just goes out the window in many of these cases. And the benefit of the doubt always seems to be given to the person coming into the country rather than the safety of ordinary British people, including many immigrants who have come here having jumped through the hoops and got their paperwork in order. I agree with you. That does strike me as completely warped. But just before we come to the interview, Alison, I did just want to mention very, very briefly what a gigafactory is, because I know you don't know. <laughs> I, was gonna, I was hoping you'd share that with us because I was embarrassed to ask. What is a, a gigafactory, Liam? We'll yeah, be talking about this a lot in the weeks to come because there is a site up in Blythe, it's just next to Blythe actually, in a small town called Camis, uh, Blythe's a deep water port. We're talking about half an hour or so north of Newcastle, really beautiful part of the country, and a very proud former mining heartland. Lots of good manufacturing going on in Tyneside and Teesside, of course. Nissan completely transformed car making in the northeast back in the mid-80s with a huge investment, the Japanese industrial giant. And this investment, a £3.6 billion gigafactory, would be the biggest inflow of capital into this part of the world since that period. So a gigafactory is a place where you manufacture the battery units for electric cars. And the logic of this is if you manufacture the batteries, then you manufacture the cars nearby because the batteries are very heavy to transport. So that's the dream. And the company behind the gigafactory Went bust and it's become like a symbol of leveling up. Is leveling up real? Can it turn into jobs and growth or is it just a slogan? Can the government help the money to get in? Interestingly, since this startup British Vault went bust at the end of last week, and I went up to the Northeast to talk to lots of people there, one of the people I spoke to, by the way, was the son of Jackie Cholton, the world who runs a pub right next to the site (laughs) where the Gigafactory is going to be. But since then, From the ashes, Ian Botham has emerged, having spent a career getting Aussies out. He's now trying to get Aussies in. (laughs) Lord Ian Botham, believe it or not, he is the UK-Australia trade envoy, and he's been involved in getting another startup to try and raise this private sector money to unlock £100 million of conditional government support for this site. So there is a new Aussie backer in the wings for this gigafactory. I do think the gigafactory will happen i do think it will generate lots of jobs but because the government wants it to start and wants spades in the ground before the next general election because this is so key to leveling up the private sector knows that and i think there's a high stakes game going on with the money men trying to squeeze out ever more government funding for this private sector factory i think that's what's going on behind the scenes but I do think we'll get a deal on this gigafactory soon. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel
2: Shriver. Which is worse? Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control.
1: <laughs> Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right.
2: My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode.
0: Last week, Liam, there was a shocking incident in the Commons, which many Planet Normal listeners will have seen. A few women MPs on both sides of the House were expressing grave reservations about the likely impact of the Gender Recognition Reform Bill in Scotland. Miriam Cates, the Conservative MP for Penison and Stocksbridge, spoke about the effect on safeguarding should kids aged 16 be allowed to claim that they had changed their gender. The Labour MP Lloyd Russell Moyle responded to Miriam Cates's speech with a splenetic attack on what he called the worst transphobic dog whistle speech that I've heard. Mr Russell Moyle then crossed the floor of the house unbelievably and sat looking daggers at Miriam, who was just a few feet away. Now, Liam, I thought that Miriam Cates would be a brilliant stowaway on the rocket of right thinking. Miriam entered Parliament after the 2019 general election. During the pandemic, she was a forthright opponent of unscientific lockdowns, particularly of the decision to prioritise the elderly at the expense of children. Miriam Cates studied genetics at the University of Cambridge. Prior to her parliamentary career, she was the finance director of a technology consultancy, a parish counsellor and a biology teacher who gleefully says she has considerable experience of sex education. I asked Miriam Cates to begin by telling us what exactly happened last week during that unpleasant Commons debate.
2: Well, obviously, he used some very strong language and some quite aggressive body language. But I have to say, although, of course, I wasn't anticipating that, I am fully aware that when women speak up for women's rights and children's safety, sometimes you get a very emotional and aggressive response. And I've spoken in the chamber a number of times before about the idea of children being encouraged to change gender, about the inaccuracies of gender ideology. And every time I speak about it, I am shouted over the top by those on the opposite benches every single time. And the first time I spoke about it, I think, was in October 2021, when I raised safeguarding issues around the charity Mermaids, which, of course, are now under investigation. And I was shocked at the way that I was shouted over and this kind of emotional response. So I was fully anticipating that kind of response when I made my speech. And indeed, I was shouted over the whole way through. But I suppose I wasn't quite prepared for that kind of personal attack. And then obviously, you've seen footage probably of later on, Mr. Russell Moyle crossed the floor and sat on the crossbenches very near me. Now, that's not not allowed. I mean, you are technically allowed to sit wherever you like, colleagues do occasionally cross the floor to have a chat with members of the opposition parties, that's absolutely fine. It's not up to me to judge the intent, but it certainly does look quite odd behaviour given what had happened in the previous few minutes.
0: Did he make you feel
2: uncomfortable? He was definitely staring in a pointed manner at you, wasn't he? I was surrounded by very supportive colleagues. I knew I was in a safe environment and it's not really up to me to judge intent, but certainly from the photos and the footage, it does look very strange. But, you know, it's something that I think the House authorities potentially should look at. You know, you can't judge the intent of people's behaviour, perhaps, but the strength of the language, I think, of course, debates get heated in Parliament, and they should do because we're discussing important issues and issues that affect everybody's lives. But, We have to model how debate should be conducted. And I'm written to by women across the country on a daily basis who say they're frightened to speak up about these issues. And so if there's one place where a woman should be able to speak up about these issues, that should be Parliament. And we should be modelling the kind of response that women should expect to receive when they blow the whistle or when they raise safeguarding concerns. And that was bad modelling. And we shouldn't let it go without consequence. So just to be clear, Sir Lindsay Hoyle was not at that point in the
0: Speaker's chair. It was Madam Deputy Speaker. She did ask him to calm down and modify his speech. Were you satisfied with that? Did you feel something
2: stronger should have been said? Well, I I think she took the heat out of it, which I think was the right thing to do. I did feel for her because I don't expect she heard a lot of my speech. Because, as I said, the chamber was very noisy when I was speaking. And also, it's hard to pick up from footage, but the deputy speaker and the speaker, of course, they are listening to the debate, but they're also doing lots of other things as well. They're not listening to every single word of the debate. And so she probably felt she couldn't make a judgment on whether I'd said anything improper or not. So I think it would be too much to expect her to kind of make a judgment in the spur of the moment. The problem with this point of view represented by those who subscribed to gender ideology is that, they don't respond to rational debate with counter-arguments. They respond to it with cries of bigot or cries of trying to silence people who express an opposite point of view. That's what's so frustrating, that of course these issues should be debated in a democracy by adults, but they have to be debated on terms of facts and of arguments and of persuasion. And if someone stands up and gives a factual, rational speech about why a potential piece of legislation could present safeguarding risks, then those who disagree should present competing facts and arguments, not just shout you down or be emotional in response. That's not an argument. That's not debate. Because we should be talking about these things as adults, rationally debating them with evidence and fact and not shouting people down. And it weakens their argument massively if they can't engage in debate. What are you talking about with the House authorities? Would you like some action from them about that? behaviour? Well, I think they should consider the language aspect. Can you call another MP a transphobic bigot? Is that parliamentary or not? It was an emergency debate. You know, I'd not written the speech. I stood up and spoke from what I knew and what I understood of it. I certainly wasn't speaking to a script. So I wanted to check. I listened back to the debate and all I could hear was factual, reasoned arguments that I've made before and other people have made before. And I think for good reason, we have parliamentary privilege in the chamber. We can say what we want without fear or favour, without fear of being sued, without fear of legal action. And that's important because we need that level of free speech in Parliament. But there have to be limits and there have to be boundaries. And I do think that oversteps the mark. I'm not seeking any... Redress, but I do want people to be able to speak out without fear about these very, very important issues. As I said in my speech, Safeguarding breaches happen because people don't dare to speak up and they don't dare to speak out against whatever is the prevailing ideology of the time or the pervading power system. And there's a power or an ideology that they daren't come up against. And if even in the House of Commons chamber we can't challenge that, then how on earth are we going to avoid the kind of safeguarding breaches that so many people are worried about? Does it worry you that should we have a Labour government
0: in 2024 that the stance that you've taken could be rapidly undermined by a Labour administration?
2: Yes, it worries me intensely because I think it's not just about the law. Let's say Labour Party pursued gender recognition reform in a similar way Scotland have. You know, the proponents of that kind of legislation would say, well, only 5,000 people have gender recognition certificates anyway. Who asks to see your birth certificate? You know, there are only a limited... Um, number of circumstances where this would be applicable. But that's not the point. The point is that it fundamentally changes our social contract or our social covenant, if you like, the kind of duties that we owe each other. And that social covenant says that men are not allowed in women's spaces and that it's up to all of us to police it. And we rely on ordinary men and ordinary women making it socially unacceptable for men to try to make their way into women's intimate spaces. Now, you cannot put a policeman on the door of every public toilet or every Primark changing rooms. But if you change the law to essentially say that anyone can identify as any sex they want and no one can challenge it, then how are you going to stop predators, rapists, people who want to spy on young girls getting undressed in a changing room from entering those spaces. The only thing that stops that happening is the social contract the social covenant. And that's what this kind of legislation would fundamentally undermine. We have seen mermaids, you alluded to earlier,
0: Stonewall, some of these quite aggressive activists. Do you think certain colleagues and indeed certain departments of the civil service, there's this idea that you're a nicer person if you're on that side of the debate than on our side of the debate. Do you think that's right? Yes, I
2: think that's absolutely how it's been framed. And We've framed compassion as what is best for an individual's feelings. And of course, we should be careful about individuals' feelings and in our personal relationships, especially. But that's not the role of people in government and people setting policy. The role of of us, of government, of politicians, is to look at long term impacts on the whole of society of changes to law and changes to culture. But I think, you know, the, the fundamental thing here we have for politicians and policymakers is we have to base our law on reality. And of course, we want to be kind, but we also have to be real and think about the real impacts of pretending that you can change sex, pretending that sex doesn't matter, pretending that there'll be no backlash, pretending there'll be no safeguarding issues of allowing this debate to continue in the way it's heading. And we've got to stop pretending. And compassion is about doing what's best for the whole of society, not just the individual.
0: But what we are seeing, if you assert any of this stuff on social media, particularly on Twitter, you get called a Nazi. It is absolutely astonishing. But people seem to be, the sort of Russell Moyle brigade, seem to be thinking that trans rights and the Labour Party as a whole seem to be thinking that trans rights are to be treated more sensitively, are to be held in higher regard than those of women and children.
2: Yes, it certainly seems that way. And that's the tone of their debate. But there's also an awful lot of support on social media for people with what you might call gender critical views. And I think the one interesting thing about this debate compared to some of the other what you might call woke arguments, I suppose. I can't think of a better way of phrasing it, but is that it affects everybody. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter you know, your social class, your level of education. Everybody either is a woman or knows a woman. And wealth can't protect you from this because, you know, however wealthy you are, you have to use the women's loose. Even if you're wealthy enough to send your children to the top schools in the country, they are just as embedded with this ideology as the kind of bottom of the league state school. And I think that's why it has, has got so much attention is that it's tossing every single social divide and people are waking up to the impact that it's having on them or their wives, mothers, daughters. And I do think the support on social media for gender critical point of view is actually growing. I wanted to talk to you about this uh, relationship and sex
0: education, hearing lots of colleagues here at The Telegraph who've got, you know, young teenagers talking about them marching into school and demanding to know why the
2: child, their daughter, has come home referring to her parents as cisgender. I mean, it is absolutely appalling, and I'm afraid it's happening at schools across the country, every different type of school. It is indoctrination, it's sexualisation. I mean, some of the materials that... Are being used are just obscene. How has it happened? Well, the relationships and sex education curriculum that came in in September 2020 it opened the door to all sorts of third parties to produce materials. And of course, some of them are fine, and some of them are produced by campaigning organisations with a political agenda. You know, some of them are actively campaigning, for example, to remove parents' rights to withdraw their children from sex education. Should you be allowed to produce sex education materials when you're actively campaigning to cut parents out? That seems a bit of a safeguarding risk to me. But it is, it's absolutely atrocious. And I am calling on the government for a full review of what's going on in schools. Because, you know, I hear from parents every single day about what their children are being taught in school. And I heard from a parent this morning, an incredible, shared an email with me. This is absolutely amazing. Dear someone at the school, I hope you're well. Uh, Please can I ask that, name of child, does not attend a PSHE class which discusses bestiality? And again, you know, again, this has been done under agenda of, well, children have the right to know about all different types of sex acts and sexuality. But you know, we forget children are children. They're not sexual. They need to be protected from unusual, potentially risky sexual practices. And in the past, we would have said that preparing a child to be sexual before they're actually ready is grooming. It's not education. No, it's within living memory that certain
0: prominent Labour people were affiliated to something called the paedophile exchange, which, and I noticed recently, there were attempts to soften the language around
2: paedophilia. Yes. And in America, I think they're called minor attracted persons, aren't they? Which again is very dangerous because it's hiding the true nature of what it's about. But I think Again, it's a bit like the gender debate. We've got to wake up to it. We've got to speak the truth. We've got to speak in clear language. Yes, we should avoid wherever possible causing unnecessary offence, but we're actually not doing anyone any favours by dressing it up in kind of political language or trying to pretend that it's being kind. We need to be real for the sake of our children's protection. So a big tick to
0: the government for pushing back on the moves by Nicola Sturgeon on the gender recognition bill. But then I was disappointed to see that the government is rowing back on this conversion ban. Now, Miriam, we know that conversion for young teenagers who think they may be gay, that's abhorrent, But it's a very different matter not allowing therapists or indeed parents to have open discussions with a child who thinks they may be trans. We've seen a huge spike, particularly in teenage girls, saying that they're trans. They may well simply be gay or they may just be confused and be, you know, seeking a refuge from pornography or whatever in this identity, which gives them a sense of community. Now, what do you think about the government rowing back on that?
2: Well I think it is concerning but I think we've got to wait and see what is actually published in the draft bill and nobody's seen that yet because like yeah I share all your concerns. Of course some of the harmful conversion practices that have certainly happened in the past and may still be happening today are absolutely abhorrent and of course they've got no place in our society. I mean most of them should be illegal anyway. Anything that involves physical harm, you know, coercion. They are covered by the law. So I do want to see what actually is proposed to be banned. I think that's really important. But yes, I think the key issue is the fact that they've included gender identity, although it seems like they will include gender identity. Where are the boundaries here? Because as you've said, there's been this enormous rise in the number of children who are presenting with gender distress. We don't understand why there is yet. I mean, Hillary Cass has not finished her final report. It would make far more sense to wait before any legislation is announced until she's done her final report. And I do worry about criminalising parents or therapists or teachers who genuinely want to help a child to come to terms with some of the feelings that they're expressing. Because we know that, for example, a much higher proportion of girls who are thinking their boys have autism than in the wider population. We know that it's linked with same-sex attraction. We know that it's linked with vulnerable children, children who have other mental health issues. There's no such thing as a child who suddenly declares that they're the opposite sex without any other issues involved. We've got to be able to explore these. Um, And criminalising anyone who'd do anything other than affirm it is very dangerous. Of course, we need to be compassionate to children who genuinely feel like they have this gender dysphoria and gender distress. But the truth and the reality is that you can't change your sex. And so, surely, the object of any therapy and treatment should be to help the child be comfortable with their birth sex as far as possible, rather than telling them the lie that they can change their sex. So, you know, again, any ban on that kind of therapy, that kind of support and just wisdom um, is very dangerous. And I think you can look at Canada, we can look at Victoria and Australia to see what, what happens if you go down this ban. And I think you know, the left always like to ban stuff. And they see the law as about banning as many things as possible. I think as conservatives, we should be much more circumspect and look at the long term implications of banning anything, what it means, what the wider consequences for society, what the wider consequences for our children, we should be conservative about using the law when actually some research uh, and education might be uh, a better way forward and again and one of the problems with this agenda with this debate is that it's seeking to pit children against parents you know children are being taught in school that if their parents don't accept their trans identity then they're transphobic they're bigots they're being encouraged to keep secrets from from parents and again this is a really dangerous safeguarding risk because the people who are most likely to keep a child safe are the parents and as far as possible they should know everything about a child but it's deeply worrying If I could wave a
0: wand and make Miriam Cates prime minister tomorrow, given the recent past, not beyond the realms of possibility, it'll be your turn soon. You say you don't want to see things banned. What would you like to do to stop this insidious taking over of our institutions by an ideology which you and I would strongly suspect most parents would be very unhappy about?
2: That is a very difficult question. And I have to say, I've thought about this from the point of a school's point of view. You know, if everybody accepted, which of course they don't, that schools are pushing this ideology, and if everybody accepted that was wrong, how would you actually row back? One of the difficulties is that the average age of a teacher is quite young. They've been through university and teacher training college. They've absorbed these ideologies as well. I think it's time to start speaking the truth. And speaking about reality, Uh, and I think the problem with a culture of liberal individualism, telling children you can do whatever you like, you can be whoever you want to be, is it's not true. And there's a difference between encouraging children and giving them opportunities and lying to them and saying that they can do, be, achieve anything. That isn't reality and that isn't true. And so I suppose what I would do if I had the choice is to start our institutions, our politicians speaking the truth, being real about what life is like, what we can expect, what we can't and go from there. There's too much fudging. Well, we've talked about some quite upsetting and grim things, but
0: I must say I'm sure Planet Normal listeners absolutely love hearing from you and more power to your elbow, madam. (laughs) thanks Alison and you
1: I thought that was a very powerful interview Alison by somebody who is clearly thought very deeply she's so lucid on these very very difficult issues isn't she Mm. obviously her scientific training is there she's a very very good communicator and what a really powerful line of course we want to be kind but we've also got to be real that's
0: right Liam and I think that That's the way these people have taken control. And it's astonishing to think of the reach of what I think of as quite a pernicious ideology has penetrated deep into our schools and institutions, materials that Miriam alluded to being used in this PSHE and relationship teaching in schools. I mean, we were reduced to absolute incredulous laughter by the email from her constituents saying she'd wanted to take her child out of a bestiality lesson. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up, Liam, but it is embedded in children's lives. And I'm not sure that we've quite really appreciated how bad it is. And I think that that's one of my gravest doubts about a Labour government. I mean, I know we're all being softened up for Starmer and Rachel Reeves and how bad can it be compared to the present shower. But for me, it is these cultural ideological matters, which I don't think they can be trusted with. I God knows what they'll be teaching children. And just coming on, limb to where Miriam and I started, I mean, you know the House of Commons well. I mean, the behaviour of Lloyd Russell Moyle and some of the male Labour MPs against the women who were saying... Women on
1: both sides. We must mention yes. Rosie Duffield, of course. Yes, absolutely. Very, very brave Canterbury MP, who was also, like Miriam Cates, even more so, really, given that she's from the Labour Party, led the charge on trying to move us away from this increasingly ridiculous position on sexuality and gender.
0: Well, there was a case this week, Liam. There's a trans woman calling themselves Isla Bryson. So the person calling themselves Isla Bryson has just been found guilty of raping two women, but will be sent to a women's prison. Now, interesting to reflect that Isla was known as Adam Graham. When she he carried out the attacks, actually appeared in court as Adam Graham, but stood trial as Isla Bryson, rather conveniently, you might think. That's something I'd say to you, co-pilot. Those of us, people like me, Miriam, you, women we know, who said that one possible consequence of allowing men to self-identify as women was this. This is what was going to happen. Absolutely calculating, brutal people like this Adam Graham would suddenly decide they were female and be able to get into a woman's prison, even though they have raped two women. Now, imagine the horror of that. And for pointing that out, we were called transphobic bigots. Of course, predatory men wouldn't exploit their ability to call themselves a woman, to attack women or to barge into female spaces. And look, this is exactly what we said would happen. And I think this case actually is, even as we record the podcast, is attracting a huge amount of pushback.
1: During the debates over that transgender bill in Scotland, of course, which is now a huge bone of contention between the Holyrood and Westminster Parliaments, during deliberations over that bill, members of the Scottish Parliament, they voted down amendments that were designed to stop male sex offenders or those accused of sexual offences suddenly becoming women. God. right? They voted down those amendments because they were branded as transphobic dog whistles. I mean, it's just completely nuts. We need to be kind, of course. I mean, I said to you in the past, I actually worked in a bar when I was 18 and 19. It was the centre of Sydney culture for transvestites, transsexuals, as well as gay and lesbian people. It was an incredibly liberal, wonderful place. And I've had many, many, many conversations with the regulars in the bar who became good friends of mine. And so... Even though I'm what you would call a straight white male, I think that means me a (laughs) cis male.
0: (laughs) Don't refer to yourself
1: as that. Don't use their (laughs) language, please. Even though that is obviously me, I'm male, pale and stale, I guess. But I have had a lot of experience at a very, very formative time of my life with people who are deeply affected and deeply and personally touched by these issues And so I absolutely want kindness and tolerance in this debate. Absolutely, with every fibre of my being. But I've never heard it put better than Miriam Cates actually put it there. Of course, we want to be kind, but we've also got to be real. I feel sorry for trans people who don't want to be at the forefront of a political slanging match all the time. They just want to live Mm. as somebody who they weren't born as. And that's completely fine. They don't want to be on the nightly news yeah, every day and the subject of podcasts between gobby columnists like us. Well, like you. Anyway. <laughs> they just want to live their lives. And yet you have these really driven culture warriors in many cases who are determined to focus so much of the national energy and debate and psyche and bandwidth on these issues in a way that horrifies, horrifies a huge percentage of the population, even people who are instinctively very, very, very liberal, people like Rosie Duffield, people like Miriam Kate, people like lots of our mutual friends and people who we love who just can't get their heads round what is happening here. Why is Nicola Sturgeon dying on this hill? There must be so many, you know, traditional church going SNP voters who don't want this. Why? They have appropriated kindness, and anyone who
0: points out that these things are abhorrent just to, uh, they will say that they're reversible. They're not reversible. If you're a 16-year-old girl and you take testosterone, you will never get your female voice back, okay? You will always be a baritone. So even if you decide later on that actually that was a dreadful mistake, you will not be able to get your female body back. Your fertility may be affected. It's not kind. They don't have the dominance. They don't, you know, the prerogative. It's They are not the kind people, and I think that that's the great challenge. Personally, Copilot, I would be all for having something like the sort of Dame Mary Warnock Commission on Trans. Actually, I think we should have something that takes the sting out of it, takes the heat out of it, because it's become such a slanging match. Now onto our listener emails. We had some fantastic ones this week. Do keep sending them to Planet Normal. At telegraph.co.uk, Martin says, thanks for providing rational and informative podcasts, an invaluable touchstone as we spin into madness. I listened to the interview with Professor Angus Dargleish regarding the NHS with interest. My niece and her husband are very highly qualified consultants, a professor of surgery and a clinical department head. My niece qualified despite the NHS, so she had to get experience all round the country. She and her husband have now been poached by another health system after battling for years to improve the clinical performance of their hospital group, being constantly blocked by non-clinical managers. In the end, they gave up and have gone where they get the support to do what is needed. It was not a case of money or investment. It was a case of terrible management structures and a lack of focus on patient outcomes. A recent study showed the NHS to be well-funded but producing poor outcomes. I look at Hong Kong hospitals in the COVID outbreak. I had two operations during the period and they continued to work and treat patients despite much higher pressure there on patient numbers. The constant mantra of angels and the NHS religion are doing more damage and pouring money in does not help. Nurses pay packages are rarely quoted in full and the claim they have to use food banks is again rarely challenged. A good point made in your podcast was regarding the nurses effectively paying to be trained. A George Osborne idea, just stupid and short-sighted like a number of his initiatives. Apologies for the rant. I hate to see this country apparently being unable to see a way forward with an excess of woke nonsense and initiatives. We have to compete in the real world, and we desperately need more of
1: the clarity of thought that the pair of you bring. Thanks, Martin. Thank you for that, Martin. Very kind. This is from Carol. When my daughter had a senior role in a secondary school, they were directed to admit a young man in similar circumstances to Lawangin Abdul Rahimzai, who, of course, you referred to earlier, Alison. He looked considerably older than he said he was. When this was raised with teachers, all highly educated and left-leaning, like our entire educational establishment, it seems, several disagreed and said he was a refugee, had had a hard life, which is why he looks somewhat gnarled for a 14-year-old. However, when the administration team, most not with degrees, but blessed with more common sense than the teachers, spotted his picture on an electronic registration system, they asked my daughter, why have we got a bloke in year 10? Which seems to illustrate the mess this country's in. Discretion forbids me from detailing further, but his presence was actively detrimental to other students whom, as Alison points out, we apparently do not give two hoots about. And they were all grateful when this asylum seeker disappeared with his two mobile phones and the knife he carried instead of a pencil case.
0: You know, I'm wondering, Liam, how many of these people are in classrooms around the country? Asylum seekers, adult males posing as children. It's extremely disturbing. Now, we often on Planet Normal get fantastic emails which do cast a light on the issues we're discussing. And this is very interesting, not to mention deeply depressing from Colin. Now Colin is writing to me explaining why that guy was admitted to the UK as a child, Fasten Your Seatbelt co-pilot. Because the default position, says Colin, had to be accepted as the result of a court case. Last year, a migrant's child claim was not accepted by Border Force and they classified the individual as an adult a decision later proven correct by an age test which confirmed he was in fact over 25. The man's lawyers, the man posing as a child's lawyers, argued that the officers were not qualified to make that decision and he should have been treated as a minor until the test proved otherwise. The judge agreed. Costs were awarded against Border Force and the migrant was awarded compensation despite the fact he knowingly made false claims. Essentially, he was compensated because Border Force officers would not believe his lies. Now, officers are instructed to accept any claim that
1: a person is a child. That is the country we live in. Here's one from Catherine. The email from Gemma, says Catherine, the GP practice nurse, reminded me of a text I got from my own surgery regarding routine checkups for conditions such as diabetes. The wording said, As patients are so good at looking after themselves, we are not running our annual checkups. You can seek an appointment if you feel you need it. Fascinating to now understand, says Catherine, that surgeries were still getting paid for that non-service. Kind regards. I mean, that is just astonishing as patients are so good at looking after themselves we're not running our annual checkups I mean who who has taken the Hippocratic Oath can write that and on that bombshell that's it from Planet Normal
0: for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reason views email of the week it's your turn Halligan
1: I think the email of the week should go to Catherine that last one because it's just astonishing Short and sweet. So, Catherine, email us at planetnormaltelegraph.co.uk. Put mug winner in the subject heading of your email and give us your postal address and we will send a coveted Planet Normal mug to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, which Jolly
0: will hope you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does really help others to find us and it soothes the co-pilot's ego a treat to be told that he should be in government, if not the chance of the Exchequer.
1: Quite right. And as we speed away from our <laughs> beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bajard, Elliot Lampett, our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And
0: it's goodbye from him.